one step in this long progress. It's been a team effort by us all the way. We're but part of the whole team that's worked so hard. The shuttle era will come to an end. But they won't stop inspiring, and they won't stop being a part of the fabric of America. We choose to go to the moon. And welcome everybody to this special episode of Talking Space. I am your host planet, Sawyer Rosenstein. Joining me tonight is a man with a glossy sheen. His name is Gene. Gene McCulka, how are you? Back at Talking Space Central there, Sawyer. How you doing today? Great, thank you. Also joining us is a chick magnet and a metal magnet, Mark Ratterman. How are you? Good and well-grounded, I might say. And welcome as well, a special guest who is Miss Space, Miss Rock, and Miss Space Rock. You'll know her music. Her name is Craftlass. Welcome. Thank you very much. Excited to be here. And our guest tonight is a true meteorite man. He is one of the co-hosts of the Science Channel show Meteorite Men, entering its third season later this year, and is also the author of the book Meteorite Hunting, How to Find Treasure from Space, available online. Please welcome to Talking Space, Jeff Notkin. I am thrilled to be back on the program. Thanks so much for having me as a guest. And it's particularly fun because I just saw you a couple of weeks ago in real life. Again. Yes, always a pleasure. Thank you. And your listeners might like to know that that was at Northeast Astronomy Forum, NEIF in Rockland County, New York. And my co-host Steve and I were exhibiting there and giving some presentations and the best part of Neef was when our very own Sawyer took us on a private tour of the Challenger Space Center in Suffern, New York, which was just amazing. We had such a great time, and I, I wanted to thank you again for, for that glimpse into your work and, and how you are educating kids about the space program. It was just brilliant. Oh, no problem. I'm glad you enjoyed yourself. That was a very fun evening. It was very fun. We had, we had quite the crowd there. And uh, it was uh, there was a lot of levity, I remember. And I remember my co-host Steve and I having a contest to see who could use the mechanical arms to try and put the bottle of radioactive stuff in the bin. And, and he knocked <laughs> his over. I managed to pick one up, but I, I couldn't put it in the bin. I got, I got to practice my motor skills there. You'd think that after swinging the metal detector for decades, I'd have better coordination, but some room for improvement, there, I think. <laughs> It's a maybe, little different when you're doing it remotely. Yes. Yeah. I, oh, of, oh, that must be it. And you know, maybe it was looking through the uh, through the bulletproof uh, perspex glass or whatever, seeing my <laughs> reflection probably threw me off. And see, I've been training myself to be ambidextrous so that I can use the detector with either arm. So maybe if I had one arm each on one of those control things, I would do better. I'm, I'm really grasping at straws now. <laughs> there were two. two there were two joysticks though. <laughs> Um, yeah, but aren't they in two separate units? They're right next to each other. <laughs> oh, no, sorry. Um, yeah, the joysticks. Oh, you know, I'm really getting confused now also because when I was up at, at AZ Challenger, I did the thing where you get to put your arms in the rubber gloves. Oh, you did and, the glove box, and yes. The box with the magnifying glass and everything. Yes. You know, I've been on all these space missions. They just start to kind of blend together after a while. <laughs> I guess that just means you're going to have to do more of them. I'd love to. And so, yeah, I want to thank you personally for, for introducing me to the Challenger Center's work. And I had a wonderful visit at the Arizona Challenger Center last week and donated some meteorites to their permanent collection. And they have quite the spectacular setup there. So if you ever come out to Arizona to visit, you must let me know and we'll go up there together. I think you'd be very impressed. Sounds like a plan. Of course, the meteorite you have at the Challenger Center in New York is, is bigger than their biggest one, but they have more overall. 
136-pound Campo de Cielo. Very, very impressive. When you said you had a meteorite on display at the center, I wasn't expecting it to be a monster like that. It's <laughs> a real piece. Yes, we're very yeah. fortunate to have that. There's nothing quite like seeing a meteorite when you walk into uh, a manned space flight display. I, I just, I really like the association there. On, on one hand, we're sending, we're sending our astronauts up into space, and on the other hand, we're collecting the debris that falls out of space. It's a really good pairing, I think. It is, and it's amazing to talk to the kids about where it came from when they realize that that years ago that was just floating in space, and now it's right in front of them, and they can touch it. I think it is one of the most illuminating things you can do for kids who are interested in science and particularly astronomy and the space program and geology is to let them hold a meteorite. That that look of of wonder on kids' faces is just priceless. You know that it's genuine enthusiasm and and there's something in them that's that's looking out to space and going, Really? Is it really from out there? I love doing that. It's it's one of the most satisfying parts of my work is to be talking to kids and go, Well, have you ever ever actually held a meteorite and put one in their hands? And of course, there's the requisite, it's so heavy. And then <laughs> after that there are the kind of wide eyes and open mouth, and does it really come from outer space? Love it to bits. Oh, it's great. The best is when people go up to it and they're like, oh, this isn't a real meteorite. And they're like, yes, it is. I'm like, no, it can't be. I'm like, yeah, here's a magnet. <laughs> I think there is a certain amount of disbelief at people who haven't experienced meteorites before and aren't familiar with, with the discipline of meteoritics just assume that you couldn't own one because they're so rare and valuable and strange. Where would you get one? And I, I know a lot of collectors who have come into the field in recent years have shared that experience with me. And a couple of guys have said, well, if I knew you could buy meteorites, I would have started collecting 10 years ago. <laughs> so, I've gotten that reaction right? from the pieces we've gotten from you. Oh, good. When people come over and I put it in their hand, there's, you know, it's all adults, but they get that look of wonder and they can't believe when I tell them the history I know about the fall and they can't believe that it's actually real. And I think in some way, in some ways when, when you see wonder in an adult, I think you've made even more of a connection because most adults are so jaded. <laughs> Kids, yeah. it's easy to impress them. Just put a space rock in their hand or let them drive a motorcycle or something. <laughs> First time experience, you know? But to kind of get through to an adult on that level and see a moment of wonder, that's really an accomplishment. Yeah. And I got even more from my Peridot. Oh, like, I bet. Because nobody when, when you look, believes me. Well, I think most people expect meteorites to be heavy and dark and have a strange shape and to look like scrap iron. So when you show them a palisite, meteorite that's got those beautiful gemstones in it that's been expertly prepared like the slice you have then there there is a certain amount of disbelief well how could something that beautiful be a meteorite it looks like stained glass exactly and now having a gem cut one and the slice i can put them next to each other and you know people understand more now you see, Cassie, only the most sophisticated collector has both a palisite slice and a faceted peridot gemstone. I'm very <laughs> impressed. It's not bad for a beginning collector, huh? No, it's really not bad at all. And uh, you've got you've got two classic palisites there. Well, thank you, and you know, thanks for helping me acquire them. Oh, our pleasure. I know. I knew they were going to an excellent home. How many people well, now have actually seen you with all these rocks and everything or have seen the show and then all of a sudden say, you know what, I'm going out there, I'm going to find the coolest looking rock and call it a meteorite? <laughs> uh, well, I think that, that question has two answers. There, there are the people who are inspired by meteorite men and seriously want to go out and find a meteorite. And it's definitely happened. We ha we've received fan mail 
from people. I've connected with people on our Club Space Rock forum who have posted and said, well, I've been watching your show and then I, I bought a detector or I bought a magnet and I went out and it took me 19 weeks or whatever, but I eventually found one. And this has happened a number of times. And then the other extreme, you've got people that want to find a meteorite, but they don't really want to put the work in. So they'll just go collect some river rocks or some basalt or something and then insist that they are meteorites. And they're, I'm very supportive of people who want to go out and do this. And, and we always try and encourage finders and help with identification when we can. But now and then you'll meet a hardhead who said, well, I've discovered a lunar strewn field and two Martian strewn fields and a new carbonaceous chondrite and a diogenite. And we start thinking those are all the rarest meteorite types. You didn't find any ordinary chondrites or any irons mixed in with all these super, super rare things. No, no, no. One guy insisted he'd found a 45 pound lunar meteorite and he sent us a photograph of it and it was a piece of granite but you can't you can't convince people sometimes that they're misguided so we we just try to be nice and go well please get a second opinion then sorry that was a really long answer to your question that's fine because i know (laughs) now you've actually written a book called meteorite hunting how to find treasure from space indeed i have and the the purpose behind this book was really to answer these questions. I want to be a meteorite hunter. How do I start? Where do I go? What do I look for? What do meteorites look like? How can I tell the difference between a meteorite and a terrestrial rock? And we've been asked these questions so many times and nicely. And I do like to share information and I do like to encourage the next generation of meteorite hunters. But I thought rather than writing these replies by email, every couple of days for the rest of my life, maybe I would compile all of my knowledge into a single book. And it's been a huge success. We've already sold out half of the first printing and it was only published February 1st. And during the the history of Meteorite Men, since we've been filming the show, I've been collecting really good field photographs. And every now and then I, I take one and go, oh, I'm going to save that for the book when it comes out. So there are a lot of photographs in the book that were taken while we were filming the show, but no one's ever seen them before. So there are some really good treats in there and discussions about equipment, hunting strategies, dealing with landowners, getting permission, classification, the importance of research. So it is in fact the world's first hands on guide to meteorite hunting. And if you'd like to learn more, you can visit meteoritehunters.tv which is a website dedicated just to the book and it's easy to order and um, in fact they'll ship anywhere in the known universe I think is the latest report on that yeah because you mentioned about the land ownership and I was reading that chapter and it's interesting that uh, (laughs) when it comes to the possession of the meteorite if you go on a landowner's property because I know that you've experienced that problem with the show before right well, it's been a challenge. I'm, I'm not. We haven't run into many problems. There have been a couple of instances where we approached landowners and they just didn't want anybody on their property. It, it wasn't that they were anti-meteorites or anti-us. They just didn't want to risk the liability or they didn't want to be bothered. But I'd say eight or nine times out of ten when we contact landowners – and explain to them that we think there are meteorites on their land. They're really excited about it. And we are typically able to work out some sort of deal. And in a few instances, we've had landowners who were so into it that they came out and hunted with us and really wanted to learn the techniques and started bringing black rocks up to us and go, is this one? Is this one? So one of the important directions in our work is being respectful to landowners. And uh, Sawyer, as you know, in, in the United States, meteorites belong to the landowner of the property upon which they fell. And then there are differing regulations for state and federal land. In other countries, it's a completely different situation. So that's also something I talk about in the book. If you're going international and you want to hunt for meteorites in other countries, make sure you do your homework. Because if you find a meteorite in Canada or Australia, you cannot take it out of the country without a government export permit. So it can be kind of depressing to find something really great and then go, oh, gee, I have to leave it here. So research pays off. So you haven't been chased off anybody's property yet with a shotgun? <clears throat> well, 
Not exactly. <laughs> uh, <laughs> not personally. Not me personally. But I have. There have been two instances of people working on our teams being threatened with firearms, and one was in New Mexico and one was in Texas. And it wasn't a case of anybody doing anything improper. It was just a situation where one of our team members went up and knocked on a door and said, "We're researching a meteorite fall, and could we chat with you about it? Could we have permission to walk on your property?" And the one guy in New Mexico was roaring drunk and staggering around with a 357 Magnum in his hand and uh, told everyone to get off his property or he would shoot them. And uh, a similar similar situation in Texas. That's where the shotgun came into play. But I, I'd like to stress that most people that we meet are extremely, extremely friendly and supportive of our work. And I, I don't want to focus on the 1% who uh, pull out the firearms when they hear the doorbell. Well, you know, it adds a bit of color to the adventure. It gives you something to talk about when you get home. And after doing this for over 15 years, we have quite an accumulation of odd stories and bizarre things that have happened to us and getting lost in vehicle breakdowns and scary animals and sometimes scary desert pirates. So one thing about meteorite hunting is that it's never boring. And I never go on an expedition and go, oh, gee, this was just like the one in Chile. Everything is different. <laughs> Everyone has a different set of challenges and different landscape, hopefully different meteorites as well. That actually brings me to a question I have. The book is mostly informational about how to do this. Um, have you considered writing like a book of anecdotes, like behind the scenes kind of stuff? Oh, you're my favorite. <laughs> That's such a good idea. <laughs> Actually, Cassie, I have been for years working on an autobiography, or in fact, one of my former writing instructors berated me and said, no, Jeff, it would be a memoir, not an autobiography. I'm not entirely <laughs> sure about the difference there. But as as you may know, back in the 90s, I started writing for Meteorite Magazine, which was at the time published by Dr. Joel Schiff out of Auckland in New Zealand. And I wrote for the magazine for many years and chronicled some of the early adventures that Steve and I went on, our, our first expedition to Chile, our first expedition to Gold Basin, and so on. And those the issues of that magazine are long out of print, and they're very collectible and quite valuable. So I thought, well, let me just collect all of these articles that I've written and repackage them in a book and maybe fine-tune them a little bit so they read as chapters instead of standalone articles. And then so I spent a year or two on that. And in the meantime, then there was the Brenham adventure. And then I went to Siberia and various things happened. So I kept going, oh, good, another chapter. Oh, well, now I should probably write a chapter at the beginning about how I got into this. And oh, then I should do even an earlier chapter about my childhood and when I first encountered meteorites. So the long and the short of it is it's now become this magnum opus that I've been working on for 11 years. And every time I get to a point where I go, OK, that's it. That's the end of the book. Then some minor thing happens like we get this international television series, <laughs> which I then want to include that in the book. So, yes, one day this this title will see print. It's actually fairly close to completion. And then you, you brought up another interesting point, which is I was thinking about doing a behind-the-scenes of Meteorite Men book. And as as you say, tell anecdotes about life on the road and, all the things that went wrong that you didn't see on the screen because they were embarrassing or horrific or both. So <laughs> I, I hope there might be room for, for two such works. What what would interest you more, Cassie, out of those two? I don't know. what I, Both would interest me, but maybe that'll give you a stopping point for your memoir. You or know, I could do before memoir. the show and then since I, it started. It's a really good idea. I thought about that. And then I thought, but if I write a, if I write an autobiography about my life as a meteorite hunter, are people who watch the show going to be disappointed then if it stops right when we start doing the show? Maybe I'll have to do it in two parts. That's what I mean. Right? Jeff Notkin's memoir, part one. So be followed in another 11 years by part two. <laughs> I don't want you to think I'm lazy. I'm just, I'm very meticulous when it comes to writing and I'll, I'll get to chapter 17. And by the time I've done that much, I then think, no, my writing's improved. Now I have to go back and redo the first four chapters because they're not good enough anymore. I'm a bit of a nut when it comes to my writing. 
<laughs> but thank you for the encouragement. I can understand. <laughs> You're talking to a musician. <laughs> oh, yes, the worst. Imagine someone who's a musician and a meteorite hunter. It must be very detail-oriented. <laughs> Well, this is a big part of why you're an inspiration to me. You came from the world I'm in and do something I'd love to do in the future. So, Well, thank you. And it's especially nice since, as you and I know, but our listeners probably wouldn't know, that I used to live in the same town in which Cassie lives now, which we found it to be a nice little coincidence. <laughs> yep. Actually, I'm twice. Not say... <laughs> oh, yeah, well, I guess so. I'm not going to say the name of the town because I don't want all those stalkers, you know, trying to track you down. <laughs> it's very, it's a very charming place, sort of close to New York. <laughs> and you happen to work in the same town where I live, also an unnamed town. I know. Isn't that surprising? We really do have quite a shared history, our our gang here. Indeed. It's and, such well, a that's the second town I was referring to. Ah, yes. Uh, oh, I, I thought I thought you meant the big bad New York City apple. <laughs> oh, three. <laughs> yeah, there you go. All right. Yeah, we we better be careful if we come up with uh, with a fourth town we've both lived in. People might think we're some sort of parallel life experience. Oh, did you ever grow up in London, Cassie? <laughs> <laughs> we can always do that with time travel. <laughs> True. If we want to time travel, all we have to do is look at a meteorite, right? Well, it, it's a good point, and in fact. When we were up at um, at the Arizona Challenger Center last week, we went up on the roof and were looking through telescopes at the rings of Saturn. And and the gentleman who brought the telescopes, who was an astronomy enthusiast, was, of course, talking about the, this popular and rather strange notion that we are looking at light that's taken millions of years or, or more to get to us. So that's kind of the abstract concept, but meteorites, I suppose, would, would be the tangible variation of that, where we're looking at the debris of asteroids and planets that broke up perhaps millions or billions of years in the past. And so they are snapshots of what happened in the solar system in the distant past, and as such are amazingly valuable research tools. That is until we can get the sample return missions up to the asteroid belt and back. When's that going to happen? Not soon enough. <laughs> Not soon enough for me. <laughs> Just curious, um, thinking about the uh, the me- meteorites that you find, do, is there interest in in some of some of those with, uh, I guess, research or educational institutions? There, there have been actually has been, I should say. There has been interest in a number of pieces that we found, and surprisingly. One of the ones that was most enthusiastically received was the large gold basin stone that Steve found in our first season here in Arizona. And gold basins, it's an ordinary chondrite. We never really think of it as being anything particularly special. Gold basin is important in meteorite history because the strewn field was so well mapped by Jim Cree and Twink Monrad and John Blennert, the original team that discovered and explored the site and they kept the site secret for two years and they meticulously recorded all of their finds so that became a very valuable blueprint for mapping strewn fields but it's an old weathered chondrite you wouldn't think it really has much to tell us about the universe but when we took this large 870 gram stone that steve had found to the center for meteorite studies at asu tempe to show to our colleague dr lawrence garvey he put it under a powerful microscope. He was amazed by the fusion crust that was still preserved on this meteorite. And it's thought to have been on Earth for 15 to 25,000 years. And fusion crust is fragile. It'll, it'll wear away. But the face that was buried in the ground had not only well-preserved fusion crust, but the thickest fusion crust that Dr. Garvey had ever seen on a meteorite. And he said that indicated to him that the angle of flight was long and shallow, and it took a long time for the meteorite to burn in the atmosphere, thereby giving it extra time to acquire fusion crust. And he also found a gigantic chondral in one of the small slices that we had made. Excuse me. So it goes to show that even something that we might think of as an ordinary meteorite 
still has the potential to contribute new data to science. Every bit helps. I've got a question, but I have to admit a uh, being oblivious at the same time. I'm pretty sure I was over 30 before I ever saw a shooting star. Do you run into people that that have never seen one? Well, I suppose we must have. That's a really interesting question. It reminds me of something that, that we hear often when we do public appearances, and that's that someone will come up and will be very enthusiastic and relate this shooting star or fireball story that they have from their own life, from their own experience. And often it happened 10 or 15 or 20 years ago, and and the, the person will, will be very excited in recalling this great event where they saw this meteor streaking across the sky and, and then typically ask us if we want to go and try and look for it. And even if we go to the site of a potential fall from a very recent fireball and we've got eyewitnesses and we've got video surveillance footage and all of that, it's still really difficult to figure out where the meteorites landed, if any. So going back in history and trying to track a fireball, it's, it's probably not going to pay off. But that that's something we experience. And I think it shows that people want to have a shared experience and they enjoy the show. They want to talk to us. They want to talk about meteorites. And I think most people at some point in their life have seen a really spectacular shooting star, but most people have not found a meteorite. So a way in which meteorite men viewers can connect with us is by sharing their, their fireball stories. And it's wonderful. So I, I guess most people have had that experience, but if, if you live in New York or Boston or Chicago or London, you may never have seen a really good, meteor what do you think it's true it took me years to see one and i had to go into a park where all the lights were turned off and everything during uh, i think it was the leon and meteor shower just to actually go and see one and it, the blight pollution around the areas here are terrible i know i've been to arizona once and they don't allow street lights it's spectacular in the sky there and that is is specific to to tucson of course where i live and that is because we have the National Observatory at Kitt Peak, some distance southwest of Tucson. And when when Tucson put in a bid to be the home for the National Observatory, the city had to agree to adopt a low light policy. And that policy still exists. And it's one of the reasons why Tucson, as, as a, a medium sized city, still has extremely dark skies. And a lot of that is due to the great work of an association that I belong to and support that you're probably familiar with, the International Dark Sky Association. Yeah. And this this is a group that that tries to educate people about the dangers of light pollution. And it's it's more than just interfering with our enjoyment of the night sky. Excessive exposure to nighttime light may lead to all kinds of illnesses and uh, problems in later life. So... That's a that's a great organization for astronomers and space enthusiasts. It's darkskies.org. Good outfit. In fact, Sawyer, your comment reminds me of the lengths I used to go to when I lived in New York to go to see the Perseids or the Leonids because I love watching meteor showers. It's one of my one of my favorite things to do. And we would get in the car and we'd drive two miles. One year we went way out to Robert Moses State Park on Long Island. And sometimes I drive up to Franklin Lakes in New Jersey. So it's it's a pretty big commitment if you live in the city and you're determined to see uh, a meteor shower. And I think one of my favorite memories was when I was visiting a friend on the island of Nantucket off the Massachusetts coast. And it was the it was August. So it was the Perseid shower. And there were still quite a few little lights around in, in the town. So I went with my friends and we walked and we walked off into the dark and we eventually found an area that was very dark. And we all sat down there on our blankets and lay down and were gazing up at the night sky and saw some great meteors. And then somebody realized they were actually lying in a graveyard. And that's why it was so dark. Because <laughs> there were no lights around. And we were actually lying on the ground between all these gravestones and we were all so intently watching the sky, we didn't even notice that we were. <laughs> no wonder you were laying down so peacefully. Yeah. So, uh, again, I didn't be disrespectful to I'm surprised because normally graveyards have a fence because, you know, all the people are dying to get out. <laughs> oh, is that what it is? It's to, it's to keep, keep, 
keep the undead from crawling out and, and attacking passers-by, no doubt. <laughs> and yet I had the unintelligent idea of uh, going to the uh, the Leonids in December in New York when it was about 20 degrees out. Oh, boy, I've done that, too. And that would have been, I think it would have been in, in 2002 or 2003, there was a very good Leonids shower. And I drove up to Franklin Lakes in New Jersey with some friends of mine who, who had a cabin up there on a small lake. And it was bitterly cold. It was probably 10 or 12 degrees Fahrenheit. It was way below freezing. And we were all out on this dock on deck chairs, wrapped up in mega blankets and woolen caps and drinking tea and trying to keep warm. And finally, everyone got fed up. We'd we'd seen maybe three or four or five meteors, and everyone goes, oh, I'm fed up, I'm going to bed. And I go, no, no, don't give up on it. And they all went to bed, and they left me out there on the dock on my own. And I promise you, it wasn't five minutes after everybody went inside that the skies just erupted, and there was a brilliant shower of of Leonids. And I was torn, because on on one hand, I wanted to share it with the guys, and I felt like running back up to the house and getting them. And on the other, I thought, oh, part-timers, they missed out. <laughs> Part timers. <laughs> well, <laughs> come on. I mean, they, they clocked off before two a.m. It was it was really lame. Oh shoot! The fun's so, just getting started. Of course. Exactly. And then in the morning, everyone wakes up and they go, "Well, how late did you stay up, Jeff?" And I said, "Only about half an hour after you guys." And they go, "So did you get bored?" And I said, "No, there was fantastic display right after you left." <laughs> of course. Sorry, <laughs> I was all wrapped up in these blankets on the dock. I couldn't move. I know it's mean, but I, I couldn't. I couldn't dare risk missing the meteor shower to go get those guys. They're lost. And I'm pretty sure I know the area you're talking about. It really can get dark and nice there. It was. It was fabulous. There was. There was hardly any light pollution, and uh, beautiful clear skies. Of course, one of one of the advantages advantages of watching meteor showers in the winter is sometimes you get those beautiful crisp dark clear skies oh it's spectacular it really is gene i know you've had a question since neef and it's a really great question yeah i'm gonna go ahead and save that one though sorry i've got two two i'd like to ask uh jeff just just out of curiosity you, you the, the book that you've written is indeed a how-to on uh, on meteorite hunting do you run the risk of sort of training your competition because meteorite hunting is a really really competitive business no it's it's true, and it's a very astute question. And in fact, this problem goes back to the very beginning of Meteorite Men, when we were asked to make a show about about our lives and about our work. And I remember sitting my co-host Steve Arnold down and having a very frank discussion with him. And I said, Steve, do you, do you really want to do this? Do you really want to put all this knowledge out there that we've we've spent 15 years accumulating? Because as Steve is fond of saying, there's no meteorite hunting aisle in the, your local mega mart. You can't go and just pick up all the stuff you need. You have to Very learn true. it. Hard. So I, and I said to Steve, do you, do you think we're doing the right thing? Is, is, is it a mistake, exactly as you say, Gene, to train our competition? And Steve is a sharp guy and is rarely lost for words. And he said, well, Jeff, you know, someone's going to do it sooner or later, so it might as well be us. And that was my, my view about the book. There, there are a number of excellent books about meteorites, and in in fact, the the catalogue of must-have meteorite books expanded last year with the publication of *The Fallen Sky* by Chris Kokinos, who's a friend of mine, and I think it's the best book about meteorites ever written. It's not a science book; it, it's a history book and it's a personal journey. And Chris travels to Brenham and the Reese Crater in Germany. Um, to Legla, the site of the of the history changing fall in France in the early 1800s, and he uses these meteorite sites and expeditions as a as a vehicle for his own self discovery and his own exploration of the nature of science and learning and wisdom. And it's a great read. So I felt that there was a void. There there are lots of textbooks about meteorites sadly a lot of the good ones are out of print and there's chris kokinos's book um there's neininger's wonderful autobiography find a falling star both of which are very personal accounts about meteorites but there is no book about hunting 
And huh. I thought I should fill that void. I was a little concerned that I might receive a backlash from the meteorite hunting community along mm. the lines of, I can't believe you put all of that in one book. But so far, that hasn't happened. And some of my friends and, and my friendly competition, uh, notably Ruben Garcia, who's a great meteorite hunter from Phoenix and a, a really close friend of mine, and Sonny Clary from Las Vegas, who's one of the greatest meteorite hunters of all time. These guys make how-to videos. They film their expeditions and they put them up on YouTube. So it, it's not like the information isn't out there. It just isn't in one place. And I love book design. I've been a science writer for over 15 years, and I work with a staff of, of great photographers, notably Suzanne Morrison, who's part of my staff at Aerolite Meteorites, and does our website photography. She also doubled as our location photographer on a lot of the Meteorite Men episodes. So I had a wealth of good photos to choose from, and I really wanted to share them with viewers and enthusiasts. So I feel like I did the right thing. I, I haven't. I have yet to be told off by anyone in the business. <laughs> and I was quite flattered when some of the top hunters in the field came into my showroom during the gem show here in Tucson in February and, and, and wanted to buy a copy of the book. And I said to the guys, sorry, your money's no good here. You know, you've taken me out hunting. Let me, let me at least give you a free copy. And, and I tried to, to give compliments and kudos to all the people that have helped me along the way, of which there have been many. And I think, Meteorite hunting is a, a discipline, uh, an avocation that is constantly changing. It's constantly growing. When you think how much more we know about meteorites and strewn fields and metal detectors than we did even 15 or 20 years ago, it, it causes you to reevaluate the way you do things right. and not just hunting strategy, but, but how to search and understand strewn fields and what kind of equipment to use and how to go into the archives and try and rediscover that lost meteorite fall that must be out there somewhere. But it's a very interesting point, Gene. And yes, I am giving away information that's going to help train people who want to do it. But that was a decision. I I wanted to Mm -hmm. share my joy of meteorite hunting with others. And there are quite a few personal bits in the book where I talk about, for me, meteorite hunting is a very solitary occupation. It's very contemplative. You're out there in the boonies swinging a metal detector for days or weeks. You, you better be comfortable with yourself. Otherwise you yeah. crack up. <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, that actually reminds me of a question I have. How did you decide to actually partner up with somebody? It was one of those happy accidents, really. And I met Steve in 1997, and he had been working in meteorites full time for a few years. At the time, it was a hobby and passion of mine. I'd I'd found a few working on my own. And it was very early days of the Internet. And meteorite collecting and meteorite hunting was a very small field at the time, and so unusual that there was no real way in which you could connect with other people who were doing it unless there was a happy accident or you had a friend who goes, oh, I know someone who hunts for meteorites too. It was the the smallest of fields. And it wasn't until about 1997, 1998, when the internet started to become popular and the first entrepreneurs were building early websites for their own use, that we we started to see the meteorite community connect. And prior to that time period, prior to 97, I just didn't know anyone else who was interested in meteorites. It wasn't a question of me wanting to be a loner and not partner up with anyone. I just didn't know anyone. I thought, this is about as weird a thing as I can think of, and it's it's what drives me, and it's what I'm mm-hmm. going to do. And Steve eventually found me on the internet, and invited me to go on an expedition with him and and it was one of those crazy things that i agreed on a whim effectively to go off to chile with a guy that i didn't know to go meteorite hunting because i was so excited to found somebody else who was interested (laughs) in the same thing as me and then over the years of course we've met loads of other people and there have been lots of people who joined the field and now if you do a search for meteorite there are a gazillion websites out there but to me, it, it's an instance where 
where the sum is greater than the individual parts. Because Steve and I have different ways of doing things. He's very conceptual. Um, he's he's a great ideas man. I, I'm a bit more on the practical side and the scientific side. And you ask the two of us to solve any problem, we will give you two different solutions. But ultimately, we'll find some middle ground. And working with a guy like Steve, who's so good natured and so adaptable, is is very good for me. And we we run into a problem and and we just sit down and we we look at it from from two completely different perspectives and so i think we each bring uh a strength different strengths to the to the expedition partnership and i think that's one of the reasons we've been so successful that we'll be at a site we'll be hunting for a couple of days and we'll be following say my plan and my stern field map and we don't find anything and then steve goes well let's try this one and then we go and we follow his plan for a bit and then ultimately we kind of fall into some middle ground and when we get to the middle ground that's usually when we actually start finding stuff so we we both benefit from it gee going to a strange place with somebody you don't even know that that sounds like a nasa tweet up <laughs> I was yeah, thinking right? the same thing. <laughs> yep. Um, I, Although our 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 proto tweet up was in the middle of the Atacama Desert, and we didn't even have any power. So, uh, <laughs> point well taken. Uh, is there? I, I know Meteorite Men. Uh, you said during Neef has been renewed again. You're this, uh, there will be a season three. Is there any kind of sort of hints you can throw at us as to what season three lies in store for uh, the viewers? Well, I'd be delighted. I can't go into too many specifics, not just because I like to be secretive and leave the viewers some surprises, but yeah, partially because we, <laughs> I can't tell you the details. We're, we're still we're at that point now where Steve and I are in in discussion daily with our production staff and we have presented a number of ideas and locations. And now comes the fine-tuning process where we have to crunch the numbers and go, well, how much is it going to cost to get there? And what are we going to find? And who's our science specialist? So I can promise viewers some new and exotic international locations, which they have never seen before on Meteorite Men. And one or more, in fact, that neither Steve nor I have ever been to, which gets very exciting when we turn up on uh, fresh ground for our first hunt. We are also, we're, we're thinking big. We're very excited. Most television shows don't get renewed for a third season, and we've been given a fantastic opportunity here. And actually, I'd, I'd like to, to take this moment to welcome James Rowley to the team. Who He's a very experienced executive producer, and he's joined uh, as our showrunner, who, who is the person who's in charge of the day-to-day building of the show and making of the show and, and he's an ideas man and he's very excited full, full of uh, great thoughts and, and plans for us so we're we've got a really great team this year really great and we're tremendously excited so one of the things we are trying to do is try out new vehicles new hunting techniques new equipment some pretty exciting gizmo gadgets that we haven't used before and as time goes on it becomes a bit of a challenge because I don't think viewers want to see Steve and me walking around a field for an hour every week with two detectors. Like that, that gets old. <laughs> we, we, we want to bring more science and more history and, and a bit more of a travelogue into the show. So we're, right. we're looking at some pretty intriguing locations. And we'll be back in the States as well. There are a couple of really interesting sites we've been itching to get to. And we're, we're in that kind of delicate permissions stage <laughs> where we are contacting landowners and uh, uh, organizations that oversee the land to see if we can get permission to uh, bring our traveling roadshow in there. Has the show helped or hurt with the landowner thing? Because you have a much larger crew, obviously, for filming, but on the other hand, their land gets to be on TV. Yeah, it's a very good point. And I think that one of the real benefits of making Meteorite Men for us personally has been the opportunity to get to sites that we probably would not have been able to gain access to. And I think the Henbury Craters in Australia are one of the best examples of that. We 
were given extraordinary permission from the Australian Park Service to hunt in the restricted area. It, it, it's a national preserve. I mean, you can do that. They're, they're very serious about protecting their national heritage in Australia, and rightly so. So our association with, with Science Channel, which, of course, is part of Discovery Communications Incorporated, is, is quite the calling card. And we, we've also had uh, amazing cooperation from the U.S. military, from the Air Force, from the National Park Service here in the States. So what we what we've done in the past is actually send a DVD of one of our episodes to people uh, with whom with whom we're in negotiations and say, here's an example of an episode where we donated everything that we found to science. And so we we want to present meteorite hunting in a good light. And there have been a few legal wrangles in, in recent years in the States and elsewhere, some ownership disputes, people finding a meteorite on somebody else's property or someone who was renting a property, finding a meteorite and claiming ownership. So it, it's it can be tortuous. And there there have been a couple of pretty high profile lawsuits. And so we feel it's very important to balance that kind of money grubbing attitude with talking about the importance of science and research and doing the right thing. And you cannot misbehave if you're going to be on television. If if it was if there was a guy who was out meteorite hunting on his own and doing something questionable without land permission, that's one thing. I, I don't condone it, but it happens. But we we must set a good example because we're on television and because it's the right thing to do. And I think that that maintaining an honorable attitude towards things comes back to help you somehow in the long run. And I know it sounds a bit mystic and I'm a hard science guy, but it just seems that there's a right way to do things. And if you proceed in a in a in an honorable manner, then people are more likely to help you and come on board. Indeed. Uh, I mean, just from my own experience, I find the same thing. You know, so, you know, you don't try to go ahead and, you know, for lack of a better phrase, screw someone um, in the process of doing your job because it does come back to haunt you. Um, True. And, and Gene, I'm, Gene, I'm not sure I, I fully addressed your question. We have had one or two instances where people were hesitant to appear on camera. Landowners were mm-hmm. hesitant. It's not that they didn't want us on the property. It's that they didn't really want to participate themselves. And I've also learned if someone doesn't want to be on camera, don't pressure them to do it. And there are a couple of scientists I've worked with whom I, for whom I have the greatest admiration and I've invited them to be on the show and they're just not comfortable being on television. And that's, that's a personal choice. And that's something that I think is important to respect. But I would have to say that we're making a television documentary series film on your land. They usually say yes. You know, everyone wants to be on TV. Well, I'm comfortable. <laughs> Almost what everyone. I just said. Most people want to be on TV, but but there there are a couple of modest individuals out there who who just don't have the need, and I I do respect that. Uh, one more thing you were, you were talking about at, at NIF, if I recall, was just trying to go ahead and pitch location, and you'd come up with something, and you know it, it would always be difficult to go ahead and do that. Um, if if politics wasn't a uh, a question, you know, if um, you know the, the the problems with with different regulations in the countries and so on. And the, and the executive producer wasn't wasn't a question. What site would you and Steve would just love to get your hands on, and why? There there are two sites that come to mind immediately that that are at least for the moment out of reach for varying reasons. One, of course, is Antarctica. Antarctica is is alluring and exciting in every possible way. It's the last real untamed frontier on our planet. And it is a continent that's not owned by anyone. Although Chile claims Antarctica, which is, I find quite humorous, but here is a really untouched, beautiful wilderness. And it's packed with meteorites. It's one of the great meteorite finding sites in the world, but it's expensive and complicated and potentially dangerous to get there. And 
we have floated this idea and everybody would love for us to go to Australia. It's just, I mean, uh, to Antarctica, sorry. It's just that the cost is, is so prohibitive. It's, it's not going to happen anytime soon, sadly. Uh, maybe, maybe season four, <laughs> if we get one. And if we uh, do a collection or maybe a benefit concert. <clears throat> I think we know how about, that would help out. Yeah. Benefit concert for me, right, man? We, we could, we could call it Rock Aid. Yes. Uh-huh. Perfect. <laughs> and Gene, another site I would love to visit is, is the Libyan Desert. And it is um, another meteorite rich area. It also has, has tremendous uh, historical interest for me. I'm, I'm a World War II history buff. And I'm particularly interested in, in the desert war in North Africa in right. 1942 and 43. So I would, I would love to see all those sites where, where the British 8th Army and, and Rommel's Panzer divisions played cat and mouse all over the desert. So you've got World War II history, Roman history, mosaics, meteorites, fantastic desert scenery. So yeah, that whole, that whole Libyan desert plateau area is pretty appealing, but that's kind of off limits these days as well. Yeah, unfortunately. Although it's it's not necessarily that not necessarily strictly financial. It's yeah, it's, it's, uh, <laughs> it's more like the State Department doesn't want you to go there and, yeah. and make that clear. And understandably, yeah. it's, we don't want any more Americans kidnapped out there. Yeah, the, the, these days that area could be hazardous to your health. Definitely. Now this is kind of a two-part question. Part one. Which episode is your favorite? And part two, which episode is the fans' favorite from what you can tell? Oh, this is going to be fun. Well, my favorite experience was going to Henbury in Australia. But I have to say that my favorite episode remains the first episode of season one, which was our trip to Buzzard Cooley and Whitecourt Crater in, in Canada. And Going to that relatively young, 1,100-year-old meteorite crater in the snow in Canada and being some of the first people ever to hunt there with express permission from the university, it was just fantastic. I I loved every minute of of making that episode, even though it was 8 degrees Fahrenheit. So that remains my personal favorite. I think the fan favorite episode, surprisingly enough, is the Dugway episode from season two and we've been counting the pilot we've done 15 episodes of meteorite men and there's only one episode where we didn't find a meteorite and that appears to be the fan favorite everybody loves that episode and I, I think it's for two reasons one is it, it shows it's realistic it shows we're not perfect we we fail and actually we fail a lot more often than you would think from watching the tv show and i I think the other reason is we, we had extraordinary cooperation from the armed services. It was kind of a funny episode. We got to travel around and look at unexploded bombs. And there was a lot of science in it. There was a lot of bit by bit breaking it down. How do we follow the path of the fireball? We talked to eyewitnesses. We went onto Native American reservation. We went to the local planetarium. We worked with the Air Force. We worked with the Army. It was a, it was a massive, joint effort between all different parties that live in that area and we came up empty-handed but we still had a great time and i look back to the time we spent on the military base as as really a special period in a special moment in the making of meteorite men and we had we had an armed marine escort out with us in addition to our ordnance experts because they wanted to make sure that we didn't step on any unexploded live bombs or missiles or horrible things out there. Yeah, that would be and bad. The, yeah, it would, be, it would be very bad. And um, Somebody might get hurt and then production would be mad because they wouldn't have a show anymore. Yeah. So there was this very nice, uh, thoughtful Marine Corps officer with us and he, he was in full fatigues and, and he was armed with his 9mm very charming guy, very respectful, just kept to himself, kept an eye on everything just to make sure everything was okay. And then we, after our, our days of hunting, we, we got back to the dugway and he drove off in another vehicle. And, and I, I said, Hey, Hey, can we stop the truck for a second? Please stop the van. I, I wanted to say goodbye to the, to the officer who came out with us because he was so nice. 
So I jumped out and I went over and I gave him a business card and I don't know, I think maybe we had some signed photos or something. And I said, I just wanted to thank you for giving up your time to hike out in the desert with us and keep an eye on things. It was really good of you. He was as nice as could be. And then I got back in the, in the minivan and the lady who was driving was in tears. And I said, I said, what, what happened? And she goes, I can't tell you how much it means to me that you did that. And I said, well, he's a nice man. You know, he's out there helping us. And she goes, he's recuperating from a tour of duty in Iraq and he'd been blown up in a, in a Humvee by rocket propelled grenade and was pretty badly injured. And in order to rehabilitate him and, and get him back to getting about and feeling good about everything, they gave him some duty at the Dugway. So it just, it illustrated to me how much people go out of their way to help us make the show. And the U S military doesn't need to let us on their top secret testing range. They, they really don't need to. It, it, was, it was support for what we were doing. And so we're, we're very grateful for so many people along the way that have helped us. And one of the things I've learned about, about making the show is that it really is a group effort. And so many people have helped us along the way. It, it's a, it's a bit like being on tour with a, with a rock band, actually. I'm sure Cassie could relate to that. You've, mm-hmm. you've got a group of people who are in close proximity for long periods of time, working extremely long days and trying to do something good. So the, the success that the show has enjoyed is, is due to so many different people. And you, you usually only get to see Steve and myself up on the screen. You don't, you don't get to see all the brilliant people who work long hours to make it happen. So we, uh, we, we thank all those people for, for their dedication. And, and in fact, I was told a funny story that when we were filming in Chile, it was right at the end of the Vaca Muerta expedition. It was one of our last filming days. And, and I was told that most of the people in the production office stayed late on Friday because they knew it was our last day and they were all sitting around the phone going, is there any news from the meteorite men? Has anyone heard anything? Has anyone heard anything? And then we, we found this amazing mesosiderite, this, this rock that was valued at $25,000. And, and so our field producer, Sonia called HQ on the sat phone and said, the guys just it paid her. They just found a great thing. And we didn't hear this till later, but everyone back at, at production was cheering and, and clapping and they go, thank God the meteorite men found something. Now we can all go off and have a drink. <laughs> so it, it, shows, it, it shows how much our production company and our network pulls for us. And it is a challenge making the show, but it, it does not feel like a job. Some, sometimes it feels like being at war, <laughs> but it is a, a joyous occupation, though a very taxing one. And having, having the support of colleagues makes it all worthwhile. Right. Plus, Cassie and I had the pleasure of meeting some of the people who work behind the scenes on your show at NEEF, and they really are spectacular people. Oh, well, thank you. We're, we're, we're very fortunate. And my, my personal team, my staff at Aerolite Meteorites, um, many of whom have, have appeared on the show and helped on the show in various capacities are all my personal friends. Every, everyone who works for me at my company is a friend of mine first. And it, it's the kind of outfit that, that we want to have. I, I want to, I want to be able to trust my, my staff members and my employees and I want them to feel an integral part of what we do. All right. Well, then I have right. one last question that I ask every guest that comes on the show. Is there anything particular that you wish to plug? Oh, well, thank you, Sawyer. I, I appreciate that. We, we already talked about my book, which uh, has been a labor of love for me. And anyone who's interested in trying to find their own space rocks, please check out meteoritehunters.tv, where there are sample pages and loads of photos. And I would invite anyone who wants to learn more about the show to visit us at meteoritemen.com, of course. And finally, Steve, my co-host, and I are, are both very active on Facebook and Twitter. So we're facebook.com slash meteorite men and twitter.com slash meteorite men. And Steve and I are very, um, accessible to our viewers. And we, we post on Facebook pretty much every day. We upload photos and answer questions and sometimes even identify suspected meteorites. So I welcome, I invite you to, uh, join us online if you'd like to 
learn more about our meteorite hunting adventures across the face of this big asteroid we call the Earth. And, of course, don't forget Aerolite. Oh, thank you. I thought we were talking about the TV show. <laughs> no, we can include anything that you'd like. In addition to being half of the meteorite, then, I also own a company that provides meteorite specimens worldwide to collectors, museums, institutions, and it's Aerolite Meteorites. You can find us at aerolite.org. That's A-E-R-O-L-I-T-E dot org. And uh, we pride ourselves on, on having one of the biggest and best collections of meteorites on this planet or any other planet that we're aware of. So uh, if you want to have your own adventure with space rocks, have a look. Drop us a line. We love to talk about space rocks. Oh, I think what's amazing are... about you having a company that you know anyone can purchase from is there's a lot of scammers out there. And it's good to know there's somebody you can trust. Well, thank you. I appreciate that very much. And I, I know it's easy to say, but we take our business ethics and authenticity as seriously as anybody possibly could. And we stand by the authenticity of every meteorite and meteorite-related item that we sell. And in in the many years we've been in business and the hundreds or thousands of of pieces that we've sold, I think we've only ever had two returns. And that was one little slice got broken in the mail. And the other one, somebody returned it because he decided he wanted a bigger piece. So, so oh, nice. We, we do, we do try and, and keep kind of old fashioned hands on contact with our customers. And one of the funny things that happens here is, I have, I have a very talented staff. They're super knowledgeable about meteorites and, and Suzanne, my operations manager is also a geologist and a meteorite hunter and a photographer. So my staff really know their subject and they usually answer the phones, but sometimes it'll be very busy or I'm just in a chatty mood and the phone will ring and I'll pick it up and go, airlight meteorites. This is Jeff. How can I help you? And sometimes there's this long pause and I'll, I'll hear a guy go, is this Jeff from the show? And, I, I go, yes, yes, it is. And so sometimes the guy will go, I, I, I can't believe you're answering the phone. And a couple of times people have actually shrieked and I've heard them kind of put their hand over the receiver and go, it's the English guy from the Meteorite Men show on the phone. I thought you would, you know, be like a celebrity guy and you don't answer the phone. And I go, I'm a very hands on guy and I love my company and I love meteorites and we meet interesting people. So why not? And it's led to some very enjoyable conversations. So my, my staff go, Jeff, don't, don't answer the phone. We're, we're busy. You, you've got to be doing that interview or okaying this copy or something that only I can do, apparently. But every now and then I'll, I'll sneak off and I'll be bad and I'll answer the phone and, and have a really goofy, fun chat with someone. And, and um, Gene, you'd asked me about my favorite episode. And that's something I love doing when, when viewers call and, and we have a little chat. What's your favorite episode? And... Uh, <laughs> Someone told me recently, actually it was posted on Facebook, it was posted on our Meteorite Men page on Facebook, but it was the Gold Basin episode from season one where we, oh. we borrowed the giant, uh, uh, houseboat to get across Lake Mead up to the northern <laughs> end of the street field. And so one of our viewers said, yeah, Jeff, I was just watching the Gold Basin episode the other day and, and there you are trying to park this half million dollar houseboat in this narrow, channel without <laughs> smashing it against the cliffs and Steve is standing on the side of the mountain yelling at you and he goes now that's good television <laughs> oh, gosh. I'm not going to say that I'm impartial to the Wisconsin Fireball but it's not that that was the Neef episode that uh, the back of my head made an appearance in or anything oh, that was that was so great that, that you and Cassie we're, we're both, uh, on that, on that episode. I, I wish we'd gotten a little bit more of you. And Gene's voice made it on too. Yeah, I think it did. Oh, really? Yeah, I think it did actually. Oh, good stuff. <laughs> well, you know, it just makes meteorite men look better when we have the Talking Space crew guest on the show. So I appreciate you guys. You made my night. <laughs> anytime, anytime at all. And you know, you're always welcome back here. Thank you. Well, well, you you guys are our favorites of mine. You've 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 become good friends, and and you've been exceptionally supportive of the show, and, and you're doing great works. And uh, 
I, I just need to put in a plug for Sawyer and his work with the Challenger Space Center and any, any listeners across the country or across the world indeed who are not familiar with the Challenger Space Centers. It, it's, a, it's a fantastic outreach group that is educating kids and making science in the space program exciting. So if you have a Challenger Center in your hometown, give them some support and, uh, tell them they're doing the right thing. It's, it's an extraordinary experience. Adults too. You'd, you'd be amazed how goofy the adults get when, when they go into the mission control simulator. Oh, boy. <laughs> We're not going to go there, uh, are we? Are <laughs> They're just excited. You know, everyone secretly wanted to be sitting in mission control and talking on on the headphone to the to the mission up there. Or at least I did. You so, didn't. Well, it's no, like adults yeah. become kids. Yeah. Yes. Very, very... Much so. In fact, yes, both more than I Cassie had one on the headsets. <laughs> oh, that's great fun. So keep up the good work. Thank you. And again, just a note to all the listeners: all of the links to that were mentioned in this show are in the show notes, including a link to buy Jeff's book, which again is Meteorite Hunting: How to Find Treasure from Space. So Jeff Notkin from Meteorite Man, thank you very much for joining us. Always my pleasure. Keep up the great work, and uh, let's try to do it next year again. Sounds good. And when can we look forward to season three? So we are starting filming in the next few weeks, and we expect to be on the air early November of this year, only on Science Channel. All right. And Science Channel HD. That's correct. <laughs> we will keep you up to date on Talking Space when that actually airs as it gets closer. Wonderful. Well, thanks for everything. It's a pleasure and a privilege to speak with you. Keep up the great work, and I'll see you in orbit. All right. Thanks for your time, Jeff. I really do appreciate it. All right. Once again, Jeff Notkin, thank you for joining us. Thank you for joining us as well, Gene McCulka. This was a fun night, Sawyer. It was just fun to uh, participate here today. Thank you as well, Mark Ratterman. It's good to be here. I'm I'm glad to have been part of Jeff's world for tonight. And thank you as well for joining us, Craftlass. Oh, thank you for having me. I've really become a fan of meteorites and Jeff Notkins personally, so this was a huge honor. Indeed, and before we go, anything else that you have to plug or no? Sure. Um, I have a fairly new single out called Familiar Frontier, and it's available on my site, which is www.craftlast.com or at craftlass.bandcamp.com and anywhere you buy music online. Great. Thank you for joining us. We hope you will tune in to Meteorite Men on the Science Channel and of course to us again. And as always, have a great day, night, evening, or whatever it may be where you are. (laughs) 